Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleforum conference call. This afternoon's topic is titled COVID-19 and Property Rights. Do government actions in response to the coronavirus pandemic create compensable takings? My name is Greg Walsh, and I am Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Professor F.E. Enrique Guerapuyo, Instructor of Accounting at the University of Central Florida College of Business, Professor Ilya Somin, Professor of Law at George Mason University, Antonin Scalia Law School, and our moderator, Robert H. Thomas, Director at Damon Key, Long, Kupchak, and Hastert. After our speakers give their opening remarks, we will go to audience Q&A. Thank you all for sharing with us today. Mr. Thomas, the floor is yours. All right, thank you very much, and good day and welcome. And thank you for joining us as our two experts, uh, Professor Guerra and Professor Soman, discuss what has become a very important question. How should courts evaluate claims for just compensation arising out of emergency measures under either a state or the federal takings clause? Now, this is a question that the Supreme Court and the lower courts have examined not only over the years, but uh, indeed over the centuries. And we're going to learn today how our experts think through that question. And so here's how we're going to use the next 58 minutes. First, uh, each speaker will have 10 minutes to make an uninterrupted presentation. Then each will have three minutes apiece to respond to the other's point. Then we'll have 10 minutes or so where the moderator, and that's me, gets to ask them some questions. And in the balance of time, we'll open up the floor to your questions. One reminder, please, do try and keep your question succinct so that your colleagues with their own questions will also have a chance. With that, Professor Guerra, the next 10 minutes are yours. Thank you. I hope everyone can hear me properly. Uh, first, I'd like to thank Professor Soman and the Federalist Society for inviting me to participate in this panel. It is a great honor and um, I am happy to be here. Now, before proceeding, I would also like to dedicate this panel to small business owners like Ms. Shelley Luther of Dallas, Texas, who was put in jail for defying a government emergency measure. Professor Soman and I are debating the question whether these business lockdowns are takings under the constitutions. I would like to begin my remarks by noting, first off, that this is not just a legal question, but also a moral and a political one. Instead of waiting for the courts to decide whether shutdown orders are takings under the Constitution, I want to take this opportunity to offer a what I call a Nozickian or natural rights uh, reading of the takings clause uh, and a Nozickian approach to the pandemic. Uh, if I were a government official, um, beginning today, I would begin operating at once under the assumption that all such emergency measures are, in fact, constitutional takings. I think the dire economic consequences, which I don't need to go into at this time, resulting from the ad hoc patchwork of shutdown orders are simply too severe. These consequences are too severe and urgent to leave to the courts. Now, what do I mean by a Nozickian or natural rights approach? Well, uh, my reading of the takings clause, uh, before I jump into the law, is going to be informed. I want to lay my cards on the table. It's going to be informed by uh, Robert Nozick's uh, very famous work of Anarchy, State, and Utopia. He begins this book, and the reason why I mention it here is because he begins this book with a very important premise that every individual has rights, including the right to liberty and property. Now, these rights, uh, um, you know, from a natural rights perspective, are pre-political and must be respected by all. Uh, but at the same time, of course, these rights are limited by the existence of other right holders. So as a result, um, this is a million logic, and um, you have to respect the rights of others. Uh, you do not have the right to cross moral or legal boundaries right when you're exercising your rights. Um, and specifically, as Nozick makes clear, um, you also do not have the right to impose unjustified harms or unjustified risks on others. Now, I begin this way because 
this Nozickian or natural rights approach may appear unworkable in the context of a pandemic because one person's refusal to engage in social distancing by itself creates a significant uh, risk for innocent third parties, uh, including even the risk of death for persons with underlying medical conditions. And so I concede that every human activity, no matter how benign its motivation or useful its consequences, does carry some positive and non-trivial risk of injury to self and to others. And in fact, as Nozick himself points out on page 75 of his book, and I quote, it is difficult to imagine a principled way in which the natural rights tradition can draw the line to fix which probabilities impose unacceptably great risks upon others. Difficult, but not impossible, I say. So this is where my Nozickian uh, solution to the uh, or reading of the takings clause comes into play. Um, if an economic shutdown measure is indeed the most effective way of saving lives during a pandemic, then everyone who is inconvenienced by the order must be compensated for this inconvenience. One of the advantages of this natural rights approach is that it recognizes what Coase would have called the reciprocal nature of the pandemic problem. That is, on one hand, not shutting down uh, non-essential businesses where crowds can gather makes it easier for the pandemic to spread. But on the other hand, uh, the decision to order a shutdown also imposes significant costs on non-essential persons and business firms. But to now return to the legal question, do these orders constitute takings? Let me begin by saying this, I think, is a novel legal question. And um, if we look at the law of regulatory takings, we'll find a confusing thicket of contradictory cases. So I want to actually begin my legal analysis and the last part of my opening remarks by talking about a classic torts case, Vincent versus Lake Erie Transportation Company, a case that is well known to most, if not all lawyers, from their first year law school days. Uh, the facts of this famous case are as follows, it's just a refresher, that a cr- uh, the crew of a steamship decided to tie their vessel against a private dock in Lake Erie in order to avoid an impending storm where they could have shipwrecked. Now, although the crew was able to save the ship, the vessel was so heavy it inflicted damages um, running up against the dock during the raging storm. And so, uh, to make a long story short, the owner of the dock successfully sued the steamship owner to recover damages to his dock. Now, analytically speaking, how are the facts in this classic case any different from what local and state governments are doing to non-essential business firms like Ms. Shelley Luther when they close these uh, firms down completely to stop the spread of a contagious virus? The government is, in essence, inflicting enormous economic losses on these firms for the greater good. Now, I'm not going to call into question the cost-benefit logic of these lockdown orders, but I will call out state and local governments for refusing to pay just compensation to lockdown victims. But again, um, are they compelled as a matter of law? Well, I have to say, because taking law is notoriously confusing and even contradictory in some respects, um, I'm going to have to answer this question probabilistically. And I'll do my best. Now, for the sake of brevity and clarity, I'm going to focus on the issue of a temporary taking. Uh, Most of the coronavirus shutdown orders are supposed to be temporary or remain in effect until further notice. So now that we've narrowed the question down this way, I'm not going to be able to take the easy way out. Specifically, I mean, I won't be able to argue that if shutdown orders are per se takings under Lucas versus South Carolina Coastal Commission. But that said, what I want to do is center the, uh, my legal analysis of the takings clause with um, Lingle versus Chevron USA. Um, Lingle is not only a fairly recent case of having been decided in 2005, in fact, having been decided unanimously, it's also a decision that did help to clarify uh, regulatory takings. Specifically, the court offered sort of a, a, a lens, a framework for establishing uh, a taking. And I think the, the decision in Lingo is more consistent with the um, Nozickian framework I've outlined in these remarks. Under Lingo, um, this is a broad brush in my remaining time, a regulation or order will be classified as a taking if, the, if that order is, and I quote now from the court's decision, is so onerous that its effect is tantamount to a direct appropriation or ouster. Or... And again, I quote again, if it's functionally comparable to a government appropriation or invasion of property. In other words, or in plain English, 
a regulatory taking depends not on the legitimacy of the ends being pursued by the government, but rather on the magnitude or severity of the regulation's economic impact on the property being regulated. And once we frame the takings question that way, can we have any doubt that most, if not all, of these statewide and local shutdown orders are in fact tantamount to a physical invasion or a physical ouster, at least as applied to non-essential business firms? These lockdown orders, as Michelle, uh, individuals like Michelle Luther found out, are backed up by physical force and legal coercion, including the imposition of severe fines and even the threat and actual imprisonment. These orders, in fact, I, I would even go as far as say that they constitute functional physical outer, uh, ousters of the property rights of non-essential business firms. Lastly, even though these uh, corona lockdown orders are supposed to be temporary measures, uh, the temporal duration of these orders, I, I don't think it changes their invasive character. The temporal aspect of these orders is relevant only to the issue of compensation. The longer these orders remain in effect, and I know many states are beginning to ease them, uh, but the longer these orders remain in effect, the greater the amount of compensation that would have to be paid. Now, perhaps we could do another panel on uh, what, how to calculate the just compensation. I have some ideas, but I'll leave my remarks there to stay within the time limit. Thank you. All right, and thank you, Professor Guerra. And now, for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to turn over the floor to Professor Soman. Professor Soman, all yours. I'd like to start by thanking the Federalist Society for organizing this, Robert Thomas for his thoughtful moderation, also Enrique Guerra for his excellent uh, contribution. Uh, I'm actually in a somewhat unaccustomed position here because it's very rare for me to be in the position of arguing that something is not a taking or shouldn't be compensated or is a property right not protected by the takings clause. I've made an entire career out of arguing that, in fact, the current structure of takings law is not protective enough. Uh, however, this is a rare case where I have to say that uh, most coronavirus shutdown orders, maybe not all, but the vast majority, do not amount to takings, at least not from a legal point of view. Uh, I'll start off by explaining why that's so under the police power doctrine. I'll then talk about the Penn Central test that would apply to these kind of takings if it's not covered by police power. And then finally, I'll talk a little bit about the morality of compensation, where perhaps there is a little bit more common ground between Enrique and myself. So while the specific issues presented by shutdowns of this scale are somewhat novel, the general idea of shutting down businesses in a time of an epidemic or a spread of contagious disease is not a new thing at all. It's a practice that has existed since the founding era and even before uh, in the roots of American law, in European and, and, and English law. And there is, in fact, a longstanding practice of uh, governments shutting down various kinds of private facilities uh, when there is a, a spread of contagious disease. Uh, and generally speaking, this is held not to be a taking because it comes under the police power of the government, which is government's power to protect the health and safety uh, of the public. And so even during the founding era in the 19th century, periods when property rights were much more strongly protected overall by the judiciary uh, than is often the case today, uh, there was little, if any, effort to claim that such shutdowns qualify as takings because it was thought as covered by the police power. The same thing was true 100 years ago when you had the massive uh, Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-19. At that time, too, many cities ordered businesses to shut down, at least some types of businesses, but there was no uh, claim or understanding that that would be a taking requiring compensation, and many businesses, restaurants, saloons, and so forth, suffered tremendous losses didn't get compensated. There's even a policy argument for doing this in that if you, do, if you say that compensation is required in situations where uh, you have the shutting down of actions that pose a threat to the public, that might actually incentivize people to run enterprise in such a way as to create such a threat to get compensation. So there is that concern uh, as well. Now, it is not my view or the court's view that 
anything that comes under the police power qualifies as uh, automatically is not a taking. There are some exceptions, but those exceptions are generally situations where government uses the police power to damage or occupy private property, which itself poses no threat, but which the government thinks it needs to damage or take over in order to protect against the threat from elsewhere. That was true in the Arkansas game and fish case decided by the Supreme Court a few years ago and in the recent Houston flooding cases uh, where the Army Corps of Engineers flooded some property in order to prevent greater flooding elsewhere. On the other hand, uh, the Supreme Court has never held uh, that the police power exception uh, to takings cannot apply in a case where the actual property that is damaged or destroyed or shut down, where that property or the activities on it pose a threat. And the leading case here is Miller versus Shen from 1928, where the Supreme Court said there is no taking in a situation where the government forced uh, a, a property owner to chop down or destroy his cedar trees in order to prevent the spread of a contagious disease to nearby apple trees. Obviously, if it's not a taking when you're protecting trees, it's even more clearly not a taking. I think when you're protecting, you know, when you're protecting humans from a uh, the spread of a of a deadly contagious disease. So I think the bottom line here is that uh, at least in cases where there is a, a genuine threat to health and safety from the coronavirus, uh, that this does fall within the police power, a well-established exception to the takings doctrine that has been in place for the entire 200 years of our history. You can make arguments perhaps about cases where some business is shut down where the evidence clearly shows that it just isn't the threat of spreading the coronavirus. Uh, but for the vast majority of these cases, it falls within the police power uh, and therefore would not be a taking. And this is actually pretty well-established, long-standing Supreme Court precedent. And there are also state court precedents on this as well. Uh, now, let's assume for the sake of argument that for whatever reason, courts decide that the police power does not apply. In that situation, in most cases, as I think Enrique alluded to, the so-called Penn Central test would apply. And under uh, the approach here, the, it, there can be an automatic taking if the government does a permanent physical occupation of the property or if its measures impose a total loss of all economic value. I think in the vast majority of coronavirus cases, uh, neither of these things occur. There is not a physical occupation, permanent or otherwise, uh, nor is there a total loss of economic value, though there might be some exceptions. So if that isn't the case, then Penn Central says a three-part test applies. You have to consider, first, the character of the government action, second, whether there are investment-backed expectations that get upset, and third, the economic impact. This test is extremely vague. I and other scholars have urged that the Supreme Court either get rid of the test or at least clarify it. But so far, they have not done so. They haven't listened to us. And I don't expect that they will listen to us in the near future. Uh, and however, although the test is vague, under current precedent, it generally gets applied in ways that are very favorable to the government. And here, two facts are likely to control. One is that the shutdowns are temporary and expected to last only for a few weeks or months. And second, in most cases, there is not a total loss or anything close to it of all economic value of the property. Uh, and I would add that there already has been one major uh, court decision on these issues, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision in Friends of Danny DeVito versus Wolf. I should add the actor Danny DeVito was not actually involved in this case, just some people calling themselves his friends. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania ruled against these claims on basically the same basis that I just outlined, the police power plus some aspects of the Penn Central uh, test. And while there was disagreement among the justices about some issues, even the three justices who dissented on other grounds did not do so on the takings issue. Uh, so I do agree, at least in part with Enrique, that there is a moral case for compensation in many of these cases. Uh, I think 
unlicensed cases where somebody deliberately operates some kind of harmful or dangerous enterprise. Most of these business owners or owners of other facilities, they're not doing anything that before coronavirus could be foreseen as dangerous or wrong. They're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong business. So there is a moral case for compensation, though I'm skeptical that we will ever be able to compensate these people on anything like the scale uh, to fully offset their losses just because the losses are so great. They also would be extremely difficult to calculate. So I fear the only way to really get out of this problem is to find a way to reopen at least reasonably safely as soon as possible. Perhaps that requires better contact test uh, tracing and testing, perhaps other measures. That's a separate, you know, teleform that perhaps we should have. Uh, but sadly, with rare exceptions, perhaps, such as ones where there's clear evidence that, you know, this particular business doesn't actually pose any threat, uh, I think these kinds of cases will be rejected as taking cases as it already happened in Pennsylvania, and few, if any, of these businesses will be entitled to compensation under the Constitution, even if, morally speaking, there might be a case for doing so. Uh, and on that, I, I hope I stayed within my time, and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you, Ilya. And yes, you both stayed well within your time. So thank you for that. And with that, uh, Professor Guerra, you have three minutes to respond. It's all yours. Thank you. Um, actually, I've a number of great points. And so I'll, I'll just go in reverse order, beginning with the Danny DeVito case. Uh, I think in that case, uh, the, the parties, the plaintiffs made a strategic blunder. They were actually requesting the court um, to strike the order, the uh, Governor Woods, uh, Pennsylvania, his shutdown order down. Uh, they really weren't asking for just compensation. And I think that there is some taking language in that decision. The court is really, you know, the, the court was right. But, and, and I'll say, uh, you guys like, you know, the government does have, the state and local governments do have this police power to. Uh, take measures, even emergency measures, to protect public health. And there may be some other due process issues and things of that nature. Uh, there's a Wisconsin case that we decided a couple of days ago. But um, I think generally speaking, uh, that was a strategic blunder. I also said that the court also got it wrong because uh, they sort of categorically say, and the part of the opinion that deals with takings, and they kind of do it, they say, I'm coming for law enforcement to say courts get it wrong. But the court said this is a temporary measure. Professor Garrow, do you mind uh, speaking into the mic a little bit more? Oh, yes. I apologize for that. I, uh, 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 yes. Uh, so I'll go back into the um, – I think the court made the mistake of um, – uh, uh, it's just this is a temporary taking or a temporary measure, so we're not going to even we're not going to even bother applying or going through the Penn Central factors. I, you know, we don't have time in three minutes to go over the Penn Central factors, but I think a strong case can be made even under the uh, indeterminate and multi-factored, you know, Penn Central test that in fact these, uh, at least for the duration of the orders, they are severe enough to trigger uh, takings. On the other arguments. It's true, and I even got a New York Times digital subscription to look at, you know, what the gov local governments were doing in the 1918 uh, pandemic. And it's true, the governments did uh, in Philadelphia, St. Louis, New York City, order um, saloons, churches, schools, a lot of businesses are uh, closed down. But I will say that those, um, the 1918 pandemic uh, is really before the court decided Pennsylvania call the man. And I, like I find myself in a very odd position defending a living constitution approach versus the originalist approach to the constitution. A, a, a consistent originalist would say, look, only a physical seizure of property should count as a taking. But post uh, Pennsylvania call and, and Penn Central, which interprets call, you know, government regulations that um, lead to uh, extreme diminution of value can constitute a taking. And so now, I think there's a novel issue, I'll close on this point, there's a novel issue that if it's only temporary, right, is that sufficient uh, diminution uh, versus the overall value of a property. But I would, I would frame it differently as looking at the, at the temporary scope of the measure during the time the measure is in place, you have a total taking. And so there should be at least some partial just compensation to reflect. And, 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 I, and, I'll, and I'll go a little bit over just to say, if you look at the CARES Act and other legislation now being considered by Congress, Right, and measured by the Federal Reserve, trillions of dollars are being allocated, you know, to provide partial relief. But these 
trillions of dollars, I would argue, are being misspent. They're being sent to people who don't even need uh, government assistance, you know, because they happen to fall under the income threshold. My takings approach and the Zikian approach would at least target government money to the people who really need it, the people uh, and firms whose businesses have been shut down. And thank you for allowing me to go over a little bit over. Of course, we have a little bit of elasticity built in, and thank you for that. Uh, Professor Salmon, you have, let's say, approximately three minutes, uh, maybe a little more, uh, to respond to uh, Professor Guerra's uh, theories and assertions. What say you? Yeah, sure. So I just meant to make a couple points. Uh, first, uh, on Pennsylvania coal in the 1918 pandemic, it is true that the Mayan case was only decided in 1922, and that was the first time that the federal Supreme Court had said that a regulatory taking would be something that requires compensation. But there was previous jurisprudence of this kind from state Supreme Courts going back to the 19th century, uh, and most takings litigation in that era was, in fact, in state courts, and yet uh, these kinds of shutdowns during the 1918 pandemic and during previous epidemics were never uh, held to be takings. I don't think even there was even much thought that they could be because of the police power exception, which applied. And indeed, even in uh, the Mayan case, the Supreme Court specifically indicated that uh, there was, would be compensation required in that case because the police power did not apply, that it was not an exercise of the police power. They said if it had been, things would have been uh, different. That's right in Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' majority opinion for the court. On the Danny DeVito, on the, sorry, the Friends of Danny DeVito case, they made a bunch of different claims there, but they did specifically make a claim that they were demanding compensation under the takings clause, uh, and that claim was specifically rejected by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. There are also a lot of other kinds of issues that were raised that we don't have time to touch on, but I think pretty significant. I would also like to briefly advert to the claim that Enrique made that these takings are you know, the same as direct appropriations uh, or because they're indefinite, that means they're a total destruction of economic value. Uh, I think first, uh, they're not direct appropriations and that the government doesn't actually start occupying or using the property or take away title. Uh, in principle, there could be situations where there's a total loss of economic value. Do I think in the vast majority of cases that won't be true? But even if it was true, it would only be relevant if you get around the police power issue. Uh, so long as you're within the police power exception, the whole Penn Central test is actually irrelevant. Uh, Penn Central only comes play uh, if the uh, government action in question is the kind that could potentially be a taking, which if it falls within the police power exception, uh, it would not. Finally, I, I certainly agree that uh, the CARES Act and other measures taken by the federal government, uh, often they're, you know, they're poorly targeted, they're wasteful, there's a lot of problems with them. I'm not sure that a takings approach would be the best uh, alternative to it. I also am very skeptical, given the real-world way the government works, that they can be brought to act in a sort of efficient and uh, effectively targeted just ma uh, manner in a big crisis like this, where there's lots of opportunities for different interest groups and ideologues to sort of put their fingers in the trough. Uh, but I'm skeptical that, you know, a taking style approach will fix matters. I fear that the only way to really fix them would be to try to get to a, you know, safe reopening as quickly as reasonably possible, perhaps learn from the lessons of other countries, which have some of which have handled the pandemic better than we have, uh, South Korea uh, and others. And on that note, I uh, turn over to uh, Professor Guerra, and I look forward to uh, the uh, other questions. Uh, it will be right. Well, well, very good. Thank you. And again, appreciate you all keeping within your time. We're right on track. But uh, uh, Professor Solman, I'm going to hold you on the lock because the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to uh, try to see if I can challenge some of your assertions. And uh, so I'm going to ask you first, uh, you know, you mentioned or you, you argued that these, are, these cases are not likely to result in compensation. But um, are there any, uh, in your understanding, the history of quarantine and police powers, again, these go back uh, uh, even well before the establishment of the United States. And do you know, are there cases in which 
uh, these type of measures in response to a pandemic or otherwise have ever resulted in a successful takings claim? Not to my knowledge. Now, I admit I haven't done a comprehensive search of every case in the history of the United States on quarantines and takings uh, or in the history of uh, England before then. But to my knowledge, there has not been such a case. There have been a few cases where quarantine measures were struck down on other kinds of grounds, such as uh, racial or ethnic discrimination, but uh, not on the basis that they were takings now. Yeah, while I have you on that question, I mean, I don't want to take us too far afield from the call of the question today, which is the compensation issue. But what about, let's say, how much due process is involved in this? And and are there potential challenges to either procedural or what we call in the United States substantive due process to these sort of measures that you think could or couldn't be successful? That's a good question. It is one of the issues that was litigated in the Pennsylvania case, and while the majority rejected this argument, uh, the dissenting justices uh, said that the lower courts should have been allowed to look it up more closely. Uh, I think that at the very least, there can be challenges in more extreme cases where it seems like what's being shut down uh, poses little or no threat. And there can sometimes also be challenges under state law, state separation of powers law, or arguments that the governor or a, or a, a lower level bureaucrat has exceeded their authority. There is the recent Wisconsin Supreme Court decision on that very issue, which said that uh, a state health official, not the governor, but a state health official had exceeded her authority. So I think some of these kinds of questions will uh, will vary based on uh, the details of state law, uh, but they're you know they're different from uh, takings arguments. Right, and we've seen you know these could be matters of state law or even uh, local ordinance and delegations of power. I mean, even in emergencies, government officials have to act within the scope of whatever power that's delegated them under either the Constitution or, say, a, a statutes or city charter, right? Yes, I, I think that's right, and, and that will vary by state. Uh, it varies somewhat how much power is delegated to the governor by the state legislature or the state constitution. There are also variations in terms of how much power localities have relative to state governments. Uh, I think these are important questions, and I certainly don't rule out the possibility, at least in some cases, governors other state officials or perhaps localities have exceeded the scope of their powers. That, I think, is a different issue uh, from the question that we're debating today. I do want to also note that my understanding is that Enrique was supposed to have a further rebuttal uh, for, I think, three minutes, (laughs) if I'm not sure about... uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. Never mind. He he had his previous tweet. I apologize for that. In any event, um, I'm sorry for interrupting your question time. Please continue. Oh, no, not at all. In fact, we gave him a little bit of anticipatory uh, pleading there. We put, we asked him to go first on, on the rebuttal. Um, so um, with that, I'm going to uh, turn the, the questioning over uh, to Professor Guerra. And, and let's get back to the takings question. And I think this one is one that's very important. And now that, you know, in light of uh, the 14th Amendment, um, I mean, there's, of course, some debate whether it's the due process clause or the privileges. Uh, oh, my gosh, I want to say or immunities, but I think it's and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment applies the Bill of Rights to the state. I mean, for the most part, that's settled that it does. What's the relationship, in your view, uh, between uh, the government's police power to act in, in, in to further the public health, safety and welfare and the, the power of uh, eminent domain, which is the power to seize property uh, w- uh, for public use with the payment of just compensation. How do you see those two powers working together or in conflict in these type of cases? Uh, uh, thank you. That is, that is actually an excellent question. And it will also allow me to make a rebuttal point that I wanted to make regarding the police power, but I ran out of time. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll go ahead and combine those two. I have to say, you know, I'm in a very unenviable position because Ayuya is right about the law. You know, generally speaking, courts are, are, and I think as they should be, are very differential uh, when state and local governments are um, exercising their police powers. And it's worth for our audience just to just to reiterate why uh, it's because we have a federal system and the uh, powers that have not been delegated to Congress are reserved to the states. 
uh, as a sort of as a general principle. But that said, and, I, and I'm perfectly willing, you know, I want to be uh, intellectually honest and just you know concede that the police power is a very broad power. But what I'm not willing to concede is that um, the police power overrides the power of eminent domain. And here I'd like to cite a very important historical case, though it's not a takings case, it's a very important police power case, Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Uh, that was decided in 1905. And this is a case involving compulsory vaccination. And for those students of Oliver Wendell Holmes, I think this case is referred to in his famous Lochner dissent. Uh, but one of the things now, the, the case is not really a good case for me because it affirms the police power, including the power to even compel an individual to get a, a vaccination against uh, their uh, will. Uh, but the case, the, there are some general, there's some dicta in there that I think is very important. Uh, uh, and, and among the dicta is the statement that, you know, the police power, though, yes, liberty under the 14th Amendment has to give way to the police power, uh, especially in a public emergency. Um, at the same time, the police power, right, uh, it cannot be exercised independent of the federal and state constitutions, right, that even the police power is subject to uh, constitutional limits. Otherwise, we, you know, we're not really living in a, a constitutional republic. And, and, and I think this is the fundamental point that's being lost sight of. And so uh, now, it's, having said the, that and established those first principles, it's not clear what that I'll be willing to see the relationship between the police power and power of eminent domain is an uneasy one. But I, I do like the framework in Lingle v. Chevron where the court says, look, there's three ways you can establish a taking. If it's a regulatory taking, then we go with Penn Central. If it is a you know total diminution of value, permanent diminution of value, we'll go with Lucas, uh, call it a per se taking, or if there's a physical ouster, physical invasion. And I'm willing to say that uh, I think a strong argument can be made under the first prong. I want to get away from Penn Central. I'm willing to concede Lucas doesn't apply, that um, if we're going to back up these coronavirus orders, even though they're issued under the police power, but if we're going to back them up with coercion that operates as a physical ouster. And that doesn't mean the government lacks the power to uh, protect public health, but it does mean they have to pay target just compensation. And, and I'm willing to be reasonable on what is just compensation. Maybe even all, just so many businesses are affected, maybe they'll have to take haircuts, won't get full compensation. But I, I, that's how I would look at that relationship. I, I, I wouldn't be as categorical as my friend Ilya would be when it comes to police power. Well, good. Well, thanks. And we've got uh, just over a minute and maybe we do kind of a one uh, light before we open it up and, and get ready with your questions, folks, because in about just over a minute, we'll open up uh, the floor to your questions. Um, um, but how about this? Respond as briefly as you can to this assertion. And this takes takes uh, uh, a little bit of cue off of your recent uh, article, uh, Professor Guerra, that argued that it's an intriguing one, Kilo. Supreme Court's controversial ruling that exercises of eminent domain power only have to pass a really low bar under the public use clause um, is actually a decision supporting what you say is a, quote, strong argument for taking down lockdown compensation. I think in one of the Citrus Canker cases, the Florida Supreme Court actually agrees with the approach. It held um, that a, a regulation creates a public benefit um, if it's preventing harm. Uh, more like, and it's more likely that there is a taking. Are both of you, if you would respond as briefly as you can to this question, do you think emergency measures are done as a public benefit or as harm prevention? And does it matter? And is there any difference? Uh, Professor Solman, how about you go first? So I would say two things about this. One is I think not all emergency measures are uh, harm prevention, but preventing the spread of a pandemic pretty clearly is harm prevention, if anything is. And uh, I would also say that it's just simply not true that the Kilo case somehow strengthens the argument that this is a taking. Uh, I've written, you know, a book about the Kilo case and you know, I thought I knew every argument that had been made for and against it, but you know, Professor Guerra has come up with something novel, but I don't think it holds up. Uh, the Kilo case simply doesn't address the issue of what qualifies as a taking. It only addresses the issue of if there is a taking, what counts as a public use? Because under relevant Supreme Court precedent and under the Fifth Amendment, uh, if there is no public use, uh, then the government cannot take private property even if there is just compensation. But on the other hand, if something is not a taking at all, uh, then it actually doesn't matter whether it's for a public use or not, because the public use constraint only applies where there is a taking. 
So in Kiwo, the Supreme Court took a very broad view of what counts as a public use, but it in no way altered the previous jurisprudence on police power and how various exercises of police power uh, do not qualify as takings. Kiwo simply didn't uh, address that. Uh, the Florida case you mentioned, I believe, is under the state constitution uh, and you know, it's, it's, it also, I think, does not actually uh, build on Kilo. But in any event, if anything falls within the police power exception to uh, takings, uh, then it would have to be a situation where what is being done is preventing the spread of a deadly contagious disease. Uh, if that doesn't qualify, mm-hmm. hard for me to say what would. Okay, very good. And Professor Guerra, we'll give you the last word, if you would, in the next 30 seconds. Can you give us your counterpoint before we move to audience questions? Well, well thank you. I'll keep it brief. I will say, again, being, being on intellectually honest, Ilya is, is, is right about Kilo. I, my interpretation is a bit novel, maybe even rhetorical. But I was trying to make a, a deeper point that with uh, what bothers me about Kilo is that the government uh, uh, wants to have its cake and eat it too, so to speak. I'm certainly willing to give, you know, especially state and local governments, the benefit of the doubt as to the exercise of their police powers. But uh, whether we classify something as a harm prevention measure or a, you know, a harm prevention does confer a public benefit. And, it, you know, the, the Lockean logic that we can't impose the costs on a smaller fraction of the population to benefit everyone else in a time of emergency. If we're really all in this together, uh, you know, that's why I took the uh, liberty of interpreting Kilo quite uh, novelly. But uh, I I need to rethink that. Well, you know, and then before we move on to audience questions, I'll, I'll end. I'll use the moderator's prerogative to end on this. I invite you both, as well as our audience, to go read. Uh, the majority and the dissenting opinions in that Florida canker case. Um, and because I, you know, I, I too agreed with Professor Selman, you know, my first reaction to your piece was, what? Um, but, uh, you know, upon savoring the wine, let's put it, uh, a little letting it breathe, um, I think at least in that case, uh, the, the justices, the Florida justices, were debating that very point because they said if something is truly needed, then it becomes under the public use clause at least something that's even a better taking, uh, which requires compensation than one that's sort of just plain old regulation, um, which is, you know, rearranging the economic burdens and benefits. Um, well, and with that, um, I'm going to turn it back to our hosts uh, to uh, get our audience questions. And I've also, if we don't have any, I also have uh, some that have come in via email and Twitter. So with that, let me turn it back to our hosts in the remaining time to open up the floor. We'll now go to our first question. Hi, uh, this is Mike Doherty, and I have a, 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 a real controversy going in the Florida panhandle about property essentially being taken, I, I guess as a layperson would say, whereas DeSantis has allowed all hotels and resorts to be fully open, but shut down all vacation rentals. So literally the Sandestin Hilton, for example, is open for business on the beach, but the condos at the building right next door are totally closed. As he might not have anticipated, uh, this has created quite a, a kerfuffle with YouTube videos, lawsuits, demand letters. And it's, it's fascinating because I'll tell you, um, you don't want to be a Republican in Florida and run for state office or, or nationally and, and lose the panhandle and people are livid. So as far as the takings clause goes, how much do they get to split the baby when one building gets to stay open and the other one has to stay closed because of a category. Yeah, so I think there may well be inconsistencies and flaws in the policy that DeSantis has adopted, and I'm not trying to endorse it or, for that matter, any other governor's policies. At the same time, under the police power theory, it's not enough to prove that something else has been left open, uh, which is similar to which has been closed. You would have to show that, that the facility that has been closed actually doesn't pose a threat, right? And that, well, that, that, that would be 
Yeah, that'd be simple. I mean, this is arbitrary and capricious, but that's fine. I mean, I, I'd like to see them try to prove that there is a difference. There's not. I mean, I, I own a medical laboratory, and I can tell you there's no scientific basis. <laughs> I, I wonder if I can finish my answer, please. I, I didn't interrupt your question when you were talking. Um, oh, good for me. Let's just hit mute. Thank you so much. Uh, under, as I said before, under the police power uh, analysis, in order to win, it would not be enough for the plaintiff to prove that something else is left open uh, is similar to that which is closed. Rather, they would have to show that the facility which is closed uh, does not uh, pose any meaningful threat. Uh, and I don't know enough about these beach condos to know whether that's true in those instances, but I suspect the government could come up with evidence that, uh, you know, there's a risk of their spreading the coronavirus. So you can argue that maybe that uh, making seemingly arbitrary distinctions between different types of facilities violates equal protection or that it violates due process or something of that sort. That's different from saying that it violates the takings clause uh, or it doesn't fall within the police power exception. Very good. Thank okay, you. Next question. Our next caller is on the line. Thanks. This is uh, Phil Goldstein. I have a question about not exact, not a shutdown, but what do you think about um, these um, government-ordered moratoriums on on evictions or um, foreclosures? That doesn't seem to. I mean, I don't know if that counts as a taking or a violation of the contract clause, but it's certainly not a taking for public use because it would only apply to certain individuals who were not paying their rent. So in my view, that should be a taking because it's not an exercise of the police power that, you know, re requiring people to pay rent is not in and of itself uh, uh, spread the coronavirus or whatnot. However, under current Supreme Court precedent, it probably would not be held as a taking because of the Penn Central test. Similarly, uh, while I think such a thing is a violation of the contract clause under the 1934 Blaisdell case decided during the Depression, uh, the Supreme Court ruled otherwise when it upheld a mortgage uh, 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 moratorium uh, uh, enacted minute by Minnesota during the Great Depression. So to my mind, if the government wants to keep people from being evicted or from having to pay mortgages, the proper thing to do would be to subsidize their payment of rent for a period of time during the emergency rather than weigh a burden on landowners or on lenders. And I think that's the right constitutional approach. However, this is an area where the Supreme Court has simply interpreted the Constitution differently from what I think is correct. And I don't think it's very likely that the court will overturn the relevant precedents in the near future. Yeah. Professor Guerra, do you have any thoughts on that? The question of whether, you know, rent control essentially <laughs> what that sets the rent at zero, uh, even for a temporary time or an indefinite time, it might be considered a better takings case, say, than the, you know, universal business shutdown order. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, well, actually agree with Ilya. So I'll just, uh, the only thing I would add is where I think the Supreme Court has gone wrong and where Justice Holmes and Pennsylvania call, you know, to go back to that uh, landmark case is is a better approach. It would be um, in the way the court looks at property. You know, the way uh, lawyers, uh, common law lawyers look at property is as a bundle of rights. And so I would say Ilya's right. And, and the court has gone astray because um, any interference with any part of that bundle should constitute a taking if, in fact, there's a severe enough diminution in value, either under the Penn Central factors or if we could argue that it's the functional equivalent of a physical ouster. Uh, and so, uh, again, I would go back uh, to first principles of property law there. Let's now go to our next question. So my name is Peter. Um, I'm an incoming law student to the University of Michigan, and I wanted to ask about not necessarily closures, but about Governor Cuomo's um, seizures. Of ventilators, would that qualify under the takings clause or that like a police power? I just want to know your thoughts. I'm not familiar with what Cuomo has done in terms of seizing ventilators. I have heard cases about the federal government seizing shipments of masks and other supplies that had been contracted for by state governments. To my mind, if the facts on those cases are as reported, 
by various media sources. I think that does those cases are takings, and the federal government does owe those states, or in some cases, private parties compensation. We have the ridiculous situation going on now here in the D.C. region, where uh, the governor of Maryland got a shipment of testing supplies from South Korea, and then he actually had the state national guard guard the shipment under uh, in, a, in an undisclosed location west the federal government sees it. So to my mind, that is a taking, uh, although I, I don't know uh, whether you know, there would whatever be uh, litigation on it. On the Cuomo thing, there I'm not sure, and that I know he reallocated or he ordered reallocation of some ventilators. What I'm not entirely sure is sort of who owned those ventilators in the first place and where the hospitals in question were owned by the state government or by local governments that must obey the state and the like. But also, uh, unlike the federal seizure of masks and the like, the ventilator reallocation, as I understand it, was temporary. And therefore, it's not quite the same thing as a permanent seizure of the property. Nonetheless, in both the case of Cuomo and the case of Trump, uh, it certainly strikes me that at least based on the limited facts available, there at the very least is good reason to query what happened, uh, whether it qualifies as a taking. And more generally, you know, it's, it's not great to see essentially different levels of government stealing supplies from each other and from private parties. It's just one of many ways in which the government's response to this pandemic so far, to put it mildly, has been far from wonderful. I, th- I think, you know, this, this, what we'll see here, these are what we might call commandeerings of property, um, is a, this is Robert, a little shift in the, the, the burden. I mean, I would think that these are presumptively compensable events. Um, and then the question is, is there any reason that they shouldn't be compensable? Because the court, I think the Supreme Court has made clear that uh, even during wartime, out-and-out commandeerings of property, uh, even if temporary, uh, in the case of Kimball Laundry, uh, do, don't necessarily wipe out the obligation to pay compensation. But we're also going to see maybe public use questions. You know, if, if the feds are seizing it from the state, does the state have an argument maybe that this is a prior uh, you can't seize it for public use when it's already being used for the public and perhaps supremacy clause type of of, uh, of arguments uh, shifting us over into the, the maybe back into the kilo territory uh, as to whether these are truly takings for what public. Um, and any more, uh, do we have more questions in the queue? Oh, uh, before we do another question, if I could just quickly follow up. This is Enrique. Yes. You know, it, it, you know, when, it, I agree with Ilya's analysis as, uh, based on the facts as we know them. And, and if you look at it, sort of take a step back, it's really a difference of degree between an outright commandeering or, you know, grabbing of uh, masks and supplies and closing down a non-essential business. And this is why I always like to go back to Jacobson, right? I, I'm not going to question, and courts should not be questioning, at least under the clear mistake doctrine that was used back then, you know, the exercise of a police power. But that exercise needs to be, you know, needs to fall within the takings clause when you actually have a physical uh, grab or, you know, it's equivalent, as uh, to borrow the language and lingo. Um, and so um, uh, that's all I would add to that. Right. And here, let's let's, uh, you know, um, I think it's even in a regular old plain old taking. Right. There's no need to compensate up front. I mean, compensation, generally speaking, is okay after the fact. Um, And it doesn't you can't necessarily stop a taking simply because they haven't paid you contemporaneous with whatever seizure there might be. Okay, Uh, host, uh, more questions in the queue, please. Yes, sir. We will now go to caller from area code six one seven. Hi. Yeah, I was calling because um, I know that, that there, are, there are problems with business continuation insurance claims, but I think that might be a good venue for the government to use to kind of, you know, let the insurance companies pay off pay off the claims and then be the reinsurer for the claims that, that then was paid off. And I, I think it would set a good precedent too. Uh, to whom was that directed? Oh, I, just a general. I, I, I just really. It, if it makes sense from a policy standpoint for the government to authorize insurance companies to pay um, business continuation claims, you know, because people are paying for um, business continuation, but even though they're been forced to close, they're not able to make claims on their business continuation. Uh, this is Enrique. Robert. Robert. Oh, sorry. 
Enrique, nope. go ahead. Go on. Uh, you know, I um, uh, that, that was actually a, 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 a wonderful comment. I'd been toying with this idea of a sort of an insurance perspective, and I and I do appreciate that comment. I, I, I comment. I think it's, it's a good one. And, and, and I'll just say this. It really is ultimately more of a policy. I mean, there's a legal aspect to the question, but it's really a policy question. What do governments want to do? And what worries me as a citizen of our country is that, you know, uh, government is just not is we're not going back to our first principles based on natural rights our Lockean first principles. And really, that's what I'm trying to do in this conversation. Okay, let's go to our next caller. Yes, uh, thank you. I'm out here in Northern California, college instructor, and, and this is addressed to either uh, guest. Um, if if the federal appellate uh, courts say would rule in favor of uh, takings uh, claims, how how would the courts, as a practical matter, deal with a flood of lawsuits? I mean, you it seems to me you'd have just millions of claims. You know, businesses of all stripes making claims under either federal or state law. That's my question. Uh, this is Enrique. May I jump in? Oh, sure. <laughs> That's actually an excellent, another excellent question. And I, I haven't written about this, but it's, it's, it's a valid point. And um, what I've been toying with the idea is once we get our first principles straight, I think we can be creative. And I'm thinking here maybe of the BP claims facility or the victim compensation fund of 9-11. I know those were on a much smaller scale uh, compared to the current shutdown. But I think if we get our first principles right, I think we can get the logistical details in order. And and I'll say Ilya had mentioned and I certainly uh, sympathize with, you know, uh, being skeptical of government getting the takings, you know, payments right. But I'll say as Winston, as we, you know, uh, towards the end here, as as Winston Churchill once said about democracy being the worst form of government, except all the others that have been tried. I think the same can be said of a takings approach here. Right. None of these approaches are perfect, but I think the uh, takings approach if we just committed to that principle, um, would be the, the lesser of all the evils we we're facing t- today. I'm not sure that it actually would be because the takings approach would essentially require uh, what would essentially be a case-by-case evaluation of the value of different property and how much it was diminished uh, by the order in question. And that approach has problems even when you deal with your more conventional compensation claim. There's a lot of evidence that compensation is not very well calculated when you're dealing with thousands or even millions of people who might file these claims. It uh, you know those problems are magnified and the risk of chaos is even greater. To the extent that we are able to pay compensation at all, it might be better to just come up with sort of a standardized legislative formula which avoids the need for you know, an attempt to make detailed analysis of many thousands or millions of properties. But really, I'm pessimistic that we can compensate all these people on anything like the full scale of their losses at all. Uh, and I think to the extent that we are going to expend government resources in this area, which obviously we are, it might be better to concentrate the resources and finding a way to quickly and safely reopen, or at least relatively safely. That, I think, is more likely to minimize the cost to businesses and others in the long run than any attempt to try to find case-by-case compensation uh, for perhaps a fraction of the cost of money we're currently spending on so-called stimulus payments and the like, perhaps we can set up a testing and tracing regime, which is at least reasonably functional and therefore enables people to open up safely. And perhaps also there can be other kinds of safeguards uh, as well. Uh, That perhaps is a subject for a different teleform. Uh, I don't rule out certainly having some compensation payments uh, but I'm very pessimistic that they can be done on anything like the scale of the losses. And if they were on that scale, it would essentially mean inflicting uh, a large cost on the uh, taxpayers and also probably some significant deadweight losses in terms of setting up the administration to you know, collect the money for this and transfer it and decide who it should be handed out to and so on. Well, thank you. You know, we, uh, we have just about run out the clock. Um, uh, but before we go and, and thank our uh, speakers as well as you, audience members, I'll just add this. Thank goodness we have Nick because now the federal courts can share in, in the processing of these takings cases. This time, you know, a little over a year ago, they couldn't. It was all on state courts. So thank you, Supreme Court, for Nick. 
And two, one model of uh, questionnaire you, you might want to look at is how the federal court is dealing, has dealt with the flooding cases uh, down in the South, the Court of Federal Claims specifically, where I think at one point there was a hearing with 168 lawyers in the world. Um, whether that's the most efficient model, I'll leave to you. And with that, I think we're just about, well, just a little over time. And so I'm going to thank uh, our two presenters for an exciting and interesting back and forth. I'm going to thank you, uh, the audience members, for listening and for contributing your questions. If you have additional questions that were not answered and you'd like us to pose it to your uh, uh, panelists, email me, rh. T-H-O-M-A-S at wm.edu, and I'll push them out to them. And with that, uh, Greg, uh, back to you as the host. Thank you, Robert. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our speakers for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedstock.org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.